Good evening and welcome to another week's edition of BAMS Radio. We're back again. Unfortunately, the voice that you are hearing is not Drew DeArmond. Drew is busy doing statistics for the high school basketball state tournament, I believe. So you're with Thomas Watts. You know, they generally let me produce, but unfortunately, pick your metaphor. The inmates are now running the asylum. We're going a little crazy here, but luckily you don't just have to have me doing monologues about everything Crimson Tide under the sun. I'm also joined by 1992 national champion, William Redfish Barger. William, how you doing this evening? Doing good, Thomas. How are you? Man, I, like I say, they let me out of the, the produ- production box, and uh, I will say my hosting muscle has atrophied just a little bit, so there might be a snag here and there, but we'll try and get a good show going. Unfortunately, you know, as you well know, William, this is kind of a dead period for Alabama news. Uh, you mentioned before we were talk before the show, the fourth quarter program just started, but you know, spring practice is still a month away, and recruiting is always a thing so you know let's let's go there first before we talk about some of the scheme things that have kind of jumped out to me as we're getting kind of ready for this new season one of the deals coming out of the last signing day and you and drew talked about it a lot was staff changeover and how alabama lost the mythical recruiting national championship and now the storyline is you know kirby smart's gonna build georgia into a powerhouse and Challenge Nick Saban 24-7, 365, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, one of the things that I know you and Drew both said is staff changeover is going to have a pretty big effect on the recruiting trail going forward. Do you have any, you know, early returns or any early inkling about what we've seen? Have you heard anything or what we might see over the next, say, you know, couple of months as spring practice starts on the recruiting trail? Yeah, I mean, you know, Alabama's set to host their, you know, you know, it's almost like every weekend is a junior day um, in college football. Um, you know, with with the way they have people taking unofficial visits and coming to campus and stuff. But they've got a, you know, a designated junior day um, a week from this Saturday on February the twenty fourth. And you know, I think as that 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 date kind of approaches us. Um, you know, Alabama's already off to a really good start. You know, they've got a five star offensive tackle. Uh, you know, committed and Pierce Quick from Hewitt Trustful here in Birmingham. Um, you know, I'm fixing to sound like Eli Gold. I'm just going to call the kid King because I, I'll butcher his last name. Good luck with Eli Gold getting this one right. But, but you know, I, I want to say that this is halfway right. You know, there's an there's a outside linebacker from the state of Georgia that will probably end up being a five-star if he has a big senior year um, named King Makabatuba. As, as close as I can come phonetically to getting it right. So I'll, guess, on board. I'll guess Makuta, but I might have just butchered okay. it just as bad. No, no, no. You're probably a lot closer than I am. <laughs> They've got a, uh, uh, you know, a really good uh, safety prospect from the state of Mississippi, um, already committed. Um, and, you know, and I think they're in really good shape with a handful of other players, you know, very highly rated players um, over in the state of Mississippi. Um, they've got a, a defensive end over there by the last name of Pickering. You know, they're in good shape with. They're in good shape with a cornerback from the state of Georgia uh, named Jalen McCullough. Um, there's a five-star linebacker in Mississippi. Um, God, it's Nicobe 
maybe his last name is Dean. I, I can't remember. Uh, but, you know, he's a five-star linebacker, and I think they're in, uh, you know, really good shape for him. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's stuff going on behind the scenes, obviously. You know, I, I think one thing, Thomas, that, you know, certainly you can appreciate, because I think you're certainly, you know, much more involved in social media than I am. I don't Twitter and I don't Instagram and all that stuff. But, you know, that's one of the things that I've heard, you know, from some of my friends that do is, you know, some of these new coaches, uh, the wide receiver, Coach Gaddis, um, and specifically the, uh, um, you know, the co-defensive coordinator, Pete Golding, are very active on social media, interacting with these players. And, you know, that's something that's really changed um, probably since Nick Saban was hired in January of 2007. You know, what, what people used to pay money for with these websites and these message boards is, you know, they paid the money to get the inside information, but they also wanted, you know, to see a commitment get popped and busted. And, you know, that doesn't really happen anymore. You know, these kids, you know, do it via Instagram or Twitter or, you know, the Bleacher Report will pre-record a video for them to put up. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that's really changed, I think, during, you know, the Nick Saban era. And, uh, but, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's a... With the emphasis that, um, you know, I think this is pretty interesting. With the emphasis that he is placing on, you know, the state of Mississippi and Louisiana for this recruiting cycle, I think this is real intriguing. Um, I was looking at a, at the roster a couple of days ago, and this really jumped off the page at me because, you know, there's a certain situation in either the base defense, the nickel, or the dime where all of these guys could be on the field at the same time together. And this will make some sense to a lot of people about, you know, the emphasis on the states of Louisiana and Mississippi. And, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know this or not, um, but per capita in the United States, the state of Louisiana puts out more pro athletes than any other state in the country, not just pro football players, but pro athletes across the board, basketball, baseball, all of it. And so I started looking at the roster, and it just amazed me. Um, you know, in a certain situation in 2018 during the season, you know, you could have a defensive line that has Isaiah Bugs and Fadarian Mathis on it, both Louisiana guys. Um, you could have a linebacker look that has Dylan Moses and Chris Allen, both Louisiana guys. And you could have a back-end, you know, secondary uh, part of the defense that has, you know, the true freshman Patrick Sertain, even though he's from Florida, let's throw him in there because he was considered an LSU lock. You've got a former LSU football player that I think will be one of the starting cornerbacks on the 2018 and Savion Smith. And you've got a, uh, a another guy, um, you know, from the state of Louisiana that could factor in as the nickel or the dimeback in uh, Shaheen Carter. And, oh, I forgot, there, there's a third defensive lineman um, that could be involved. And, obviously, he was the, he's the returning uh, sack leader from the 2017 from the state of Mississippi, Raekwon Quanzilla McMillan. So, you know, the way I added the numbers up, you could have, you know, seven or eight guys starting on the field at the same time from those two states. So, you know, that kind of provides some insight into why, you know, Nick Saban is so focused on two states that I'm being told um, has once-in-a-generation level talent. 
in both states for the 2019 recruiting cycle. Uh, I'll be honest, Fish. I hadn't realized that. I guess I just hadn't thought about it. But I do want to circle back to an interesting point. You know, you brought up coaches interacting with prospects on social media and how that's changed. You know, you've been in the recruiting churn, let's call it that, for a good many years now. What else has really stood out to you that's changed over the past couple of cycles that Nick Saban's now having to deal with that just frankly is different? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing, you know, Thomas, that I run across with, you know, my friends and people that I talk to on a regular basis is, is people have such a, a a lot of misinformation about what a quote-unquote dead period in the recruiting cycle actually involves. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, there is no recruiting. Um, you know, the coaches aren't allowed to, you know, talk to the players or interact with them. And really, all a dead period entails is the coaches are not allowed to make in-person contact face-to-face, um, you know, with a prospect. But the coaches are allowed to uh, make contact once a week during a dead period cycle. But the players, their parents, can contact the coaches via, you know, cell phone, text message, you know, Facebook Messenger, whatever else, Twitter, uh, direct messaging as much as they want to. So it's really not much of a dead period other than um, there's some constraints there about the coaches being allowed to visit prospects or their family members off campus. But there, there is a ton of contact, um, you know, during dead period times. And, you know, but, but to me, you know, Thomas, I think the biggest thing if you want to know how the recruiting game has changed, you know, under Nick Saban, um, you know, when he first, you know, came to Alabama in January of 2007, I think he had like two recruiting cycles where he was able to do what he loves to do more than anything. And that's go to high school spring practices and interact and visit with high school coaches and high school prospects in person. And, you know, Mark Rick was kind of the ringleader in getting passed with the NCAA, which is commonly known as the Nick Saban bump rule, um, which, which basically, you know, didn't just, you know, eliminate Nick Saban from being able to do it. It also eliminated Mark Rick and everybody else from being able to do it. And what it's turned into is just an absolute nightmare for um, assistant coaches. Um, you know, I can't speak to what the schedules are for, you know, assistant coaches at other programs, but I know several Alabama coaches um, during the, you know, the Nick Saban era that average sleeping, you know, in the, the, the May evaluation period is what we're talking about, um, which tends to go from April 23rd to May 23rd. You know, that date might fluctuate a day or two one way or the other given a calendar year. But, but a, a, your average Nick Saban position coach during that 30-day period, if they're lucky, they get to spend the night in their own bed one or two times during that 30-day period. So, you know, it's, you know, and people, you know, they scratch their heads and they wonder why these guys are paid so much. Um, that, that's one of the reasons why, you know, you just, you don't have much of a home life. 
um, you know, I'm not going to name the school, uh, but in 2012, I was offered an entry-level recruiting job at an SEC school, and it wasn't Alabama. Um, and, you know, before I ever even went to the place, which I did, I ended up not even going and doing a face-to-face interview. I did a phone interview. And once I was told and asked about, you know, how I felt about working on weekends, uh, my response was, you know, I don't mind doing it from time to time. And I was quickly told, um, you know, by the, the coach that I was supposed to go interview with face-to-face, well, no, it's not just time, time to time. If you're working in our recruiting department, there is no Saturday and Sunday off 365 days a year. Last year, and they were talking about 2011, um, the people in our recruiting department worked every Saturday and Sunday from, you know, January 1st through December 31st. That's what this has turned into. You know, they had at least one prospect in their family making an unofficial visit every Saturday and Sunday, um, you know, outside of the season, you know, where they were coming from going for games. So, you know, it's just crazy. That, 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 that sounds miserable. Uh, I'm getting a PhD, and I specifically tell my advisor, do not email me. Do not call me unless something has exploded in one of the experiments on either Saturday or Sunday. You pick the day. (laughs) But, you know, and just just to kind of put a bow on the recruiting conversation, because this is kind of the hot-button topic, talking to some of the folks that I know you've been speaking to about recruiting in general and how the changes are happening, you know, what, what's been the fallout of the early signing period and how do you see not just Nick Saban, but just let's call it the recruiting circle in general kind of adapting to it now that everybody's gotten their feet wet with this first run through? I'll be surprised um, because I think it caused more problems um, than it alleviated. I'll be really surprised if the early signing period um, stays written in stone much longer than maybe for the next two years. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, a, an inherent disadvantage for, you know, schools like uh, that are perennial college football playoff teams. You know, a school like Alabama that's been to every college football playoff since its inception um, you know, they lose that big recruiting weekend, um, you know, with, with the, the national championship game being basically, um, you know, what, the second Monday in, in January, you know, somewhere around the 10th. You know, by the time the, the coaches and the players, um, you know, get back to campus, they just don't have, you know, enough time to get everything organized and, and segueing from, you know, playing for a national championship or winning one. Um, to, to, you know, have that big weekend. And a lot of the other schools, you know, that don't spend the month of December, um, you know, game planning for, uh, you know, that kind of deal, you know, they've kind of got an advantage because they can come out of the gate, um, you know, with the dead period when it ends. And they can have a huge first, uh, you know, big weekend in January around the, you know, the 15th, let's just call it that. Um, you know, that's just something that Alabama can't pull off or orchestrate because, you know, they're focused on, you know, nine times out of ten, 
you know, the, the first Saturday in December, they're they're playing in an SEC championship game. Um, the last Saturday in Jan- in December, they're playing in a playoff game. And what the sixteen, fifteen, sixteen, and, and seventeen, you know, they were playing for a national championship. So. I think that, you know, the NCAA had some good intentions when they, you know, kind of trotted this early signing period out there. But but I know for a fact there's a lot of college football coaches that didn't like the way it was executed. And that does also ignore the fact that a team like Oregon, who just changed coaches with Willie Taggart going to Florida State and Mario Cristobal taking over, they had bull stuff to handle when in right in the middle of all of this you know they actually are up if you have an if you have an early bowl you literally lose visit time so it's not just the college football playoff groups no and you know something else that came up thomas and you brought up a great point because i think it transpired into willie taggart at oregon and then going to florida state and jimbo fisher at fsu going to texas a&m there was a lot of confusion as to, you know, if Jimbo Fisher or Willie Taggart at FSU in Oregon made in-home visits with prospects as the head coaches of Oregon and Florida State, were they allowed to be able to do it again and duplicate the process, you know, at their new coaching destinations at Florida State and Texas A&M? So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of crazy. I know Nick Saban's not a fan of it, um, and I, I don't think a lot of other people are either. Just because it created, you know, kind of more confusion than it did clarity for, um, you know, a lot of things. You, you saw, um, you know, Alabama, you know, maybe probably get, you know, caught with their pants down with the, with the defensive lineman from Texas, Bobby Brown. Um, you know, he flipped from from Texas A and M to Alabama but did not sign during the, the early uh, signing process and then, you know, turned around and flipped back from Alabama back to Texas A&M on National Signing Day. So I think you're going to probably see, unless they can come up with, you know, a better recipe to execute this thing with, I think you're going to probably see it flip back to, you know, what it used to be um, two years ago. The December 15th dead period starts. Um, there's probably not going to be an early signing period, and it's going to go back to, uh, you know, everybody has to, you know, chase their tails till National Signing Day on the first Wednesday in February. Well, if that's the case, advantage Nick Saban. So, uh, you know, as a sure. as a completely unbiased person who watches these 18-year-olds sign with their <laughs> schools, I am perfectly okay with this. No, that is not sarcasm that you can cut with a chainsaw. I promise. <laughs> but you know, uh, the, agree. Yeah. So, so the recruiting world is it. I I haven't followed it as closely in recent years because it just got crazier and crazier the more I got into it. And I was like, nope, nope. Um, I'll, I'll be happy for the kids that go to Alabama. I will wish other kids well nine times out of ten. As long as you're not, quite frankly, underscoring the fact you're an 18 year old kid with how you act. But that, that's as far as I desperately want to go. So that being said, you know, I did mention at the start of the show, we're still five weeks away from spring practice. But 
you brought up an interesting point, and I'd like you to expand upon this, William, with regards to this year's group and Tosh Lupoy's promotion in terms of how he's somewhat shifting some of the nomenclature, some of the verbiage, verbiage, excuse me, around the linebacker group. And this is something, like, when you said it, I have to say that uh, I was pretty surprised I guess it sort of makes sense the more I thought about what the position overlap actually means. But uh, can you expand upon the point about how the Sam and the Jack linebacker has just turned into a glorified cross trainer? Sure. And I think also, too, I mean, I think somebody that, you know, kind of pushed this um, a little bit, even though I think the idea, you know, kind of, you know, organically spawned for, from Tosh Lapoy. You know, I think Jeremy Pruitt being the defensive coordinator for, for the, the last two seasons at Alabama certainly played a hand in this as well because he is a, you know, a guy that is a little bit on the opposite side of Nick Saban when it comes to um, player evaluations and, and, you know, what he wants to see out of a player. It's also a byproduct of, of the college football game, um, you know, morphing into, um, you know, let's be honest, you know, when, when Nick Saban came to Alabama, um, it was pretty clear what his uh, M.O. was. You know, he had to get the University of Alabama, you know, competitive and, and, and real quickly with, with beating their three big rivals, and that was LSU, Tennessee, and Auburn. And, you know, he came – you know, with this stigma, you know, coming out of, you know, the Bill Belichick system. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff, you know, kind of originated with his time in Miami when he had a guy like Jason Taylor, um, who's a Hall of Fame football player, that was kind of considered, you know, the prototypical Jack linebacker. And, you know, you saw all kinds of stuff, Thomas. I know you're, you know, a little bit younger than me, so you might have not been paying attention to this stuff from – 2007 to 2010, but, you know, th there was this stigma of, you know, Nick Saban has to have this prototypical Jack linebacker, and, you know, the prototype was Jason Taylor. And, and really, the only, you know, guy that even Alabama was um, involved with that fits that mold of a Jason Taylor was, you know, Alabama was probably the bridesmaid for uh, somebody named Davion Clowney. Um, you know, when you when you look at the fact that you know Nick Saban is a disciple of the three four defense, but you know what's happened is you know the, the game has changed. You know, th there's not a lot of you know when 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 Saban first came to Alabama, um, you know, under Tommy Tuberville, Auburn was a downhill running team. Uh, LSU under Les Miles was a downhill running team. You know, even under Mark Rick at Georgia. Um, you know, they were a, you know, pro-style offense. You know, Arkansas, Bobby Petrino, uh, Brett Belima, you know, pro-style running team. But, you know, you, if you look at the, the football schedule that's in front of Alabama for 2018, um, there's not a lot of, you know, pro-style downhill running teams that this Tosh Lapoy defense is going to face. You know, it's – dual threat quarterbacks it's spread offenses um you know if, if uh, you know jake Fromm is able to hold off 
uh, Justin Fields, who was the number one dual threat quarterback in the country at Georgia. I think you'll see that offense change a little bit. Um, you know, you know, Jarrett Stidham isn't really a true dual threat quarterback. He, he's more pro style in my mind. But what you see is different player evaluations and, and roster management ideas, um, you know, coming and going. And Jeremy Pruitt has always been a, in my opinion, more of a Butch Davis disciple than a Nick Saban disciple. He likes long guys that can run at every position. And that means as edge rushers, outside linebackers, and cornerbacks. And so you saw that influence in the recruiting cycles the last two years at Alabama. Um, you know, Alabama just signed, in, in, in my mind, um, and some college coaches agree with me, uh, you know, a guy, you know, an eBay Anoma um, that absolutely mopped up the floor, um, you know, at the Under Armour All-American game with, with a guy that, you know, a lot of Alabama fans, I was certainly never on board with this because – I just didn't think it made good sense for, for him um, as a player, uh, you know, to come to Alabama with a loaded, you know, five-star offensive tackle cutboard that was already full. But, you know, a guy like Nicholas Petit-Fierre, um, you know, eBay Anoma humiliated him at the Under Armour practices and, the, and, and the, during the actual game. But, you know, you know Anoma's a guy that's, you know, 235 pounds dripping wet. Obviously, he's going to get better, but, you know, you can't coach that length and that, that wingspan, you know, much like a Jadavion Clowney. Um, you know, they've got guys already on, on, the, on the team that fit that mold in, you know, a Terrell Lewis and a Christian Miller. You know, really the only true body type that, that's there right now that's a jack linebacker in, in the mold of, say, a Ryan Anderson is Anthony Jennings. Um, you know, the rest of those guys are more Sam line, linebacker body types. But, you know, what Tosh LePoy has done, and, you know, this makes sense from a recruiting standpoint and, and building depth, is he requires his outside linebackers to learn both sides of that base defense. And when I say that, the Jack spot and the Sam spot collectively, he requires them to learn them both equally well and what that guards against is, is from a recruiting standpoint, you don't have to recruit to a position-specific uh, player. You know, you get the body type in there, and, you know, maybe a guy, you know, like Anthony Jennings becomes a, you know, a big-ass, big, lower-bodied guy like Ryan Anderson. But, you know, most of them are probably going to stay over there into, you know, more of the Sam profile, which – you know, Terrell Lewis, uh, Christian Miller, even a Chris Allen. And, you know, w you know with a Noma coming in this year, um, they're, they're more Sam linebacker-type body styles. And I think you'll see that continue, um, you know, for as long as Tosh LePoy is the defensive coordinator at Alabama. Um, and, and it's, you know, the, the philosophy is, is this. And I think you saw – the philosophy kind of come to a head in 2012, um, you know, when Alabama got their first taste of, you know, they, they got a little bit of taste of Cam Newton, but that was just for one year. 
But when Alabama really got their full first taste of just how dangerous a true dual threat quarterback was, was in, you know, from 2012 to 2013 when they had to deal with Johnny Manziel twice and, you know, Nick Marshall. And, and so, you know, you, you can't have, you know, a guy like a Trey DePriest or, or a Denzel Duvall who's an edge setter at Jack Linebacker in the base defense. You've got to have guys that can move, stick their foot in the ground, change directions on a dime. Um, and so that's, that's where you're at now with this, you know, recruiting, uh, you know, player personnel type stuff. And I don't think it's going to change because – you know, if you look at the landscape of college football, every year um, you see these dual-threat quarterbacks, you know, like a Baker Mayfield, um, you know, becoming more in vogue and, and the damage that they can do, um, you know, with RPOs and zone reads. Um, so, you know, I think that's where we're at there uh, with that thing. But I, I do like what Tosh Lapoy has done as far as, eliminating the need for Alabama to recruit to a specific position and just getting guys out there that have, you know, long arms, you know, you put a little weight on them and, uh, you know, they can play both sides. That's really interesting. And uh, I think you're right in that we're going to see something like that continue. Actually, as you were explaining your point, I looked up the Alabama schedule for this next year and maybe you're going to have two pro-style teams if you want to call Texas A&M pro-style, if that's where Jimbo Fisher's going to take him. And maybe LSU's going to be pro, but I frankly think LSU is a dumpster fire and uh, Ed Orgeron is happily running that program into the ground. Thank you for your recruits, Ed. You're a moron. But uh, so very, very interesting point. In, you know, one thing... Do you have any insight? And this is, I apologize, this is a little out of left field. What do you think the Tennessee offense is going to look like, given the staff changeover and where Jeremy Pruitt's going to want to push that team? Do you have any insight in there? Because I know, I know you're, you're well, close to Jeremy. Well, sort of. That's not, that's not. Well, you know, I think number one, Jeremy has done a great job of hiring a staff that, you know, if you look at the guys that he's hired, um, they're they're very good X's and O's coaches. Um, they're very good recruiters. They have a, you know, he's kind of gone in the opposite direction of Nick Saban, um, who, who you know Nick Saban's in in the midst of hiring a staff that has a huge Mississippi Louisiana floating all the way over into um, East Texas in the Houston area flavor. Jeremy's taking the opposite approach, and I think this is something for that, that should really kind of cause Kirby Smart some concern. You know, he, he's he's got guys that were on that that Georgia staff um, both last year, you know, under Kirby Smart, and then when Jeremy was over there, you know, uh, Kevin Shearer, Tracy Rocker, um, you know, he's gotten guys that have you know big time relationships in the state of Georgia, and. It, if you go back and you look at, um, you know, when Phil Fulmer was successful, um, you know, that, that one national championship team that he had in, in 1998, the reason for that success was um, he had, you know, 
where where he is now, Rodney Garner, the current defensive line coach um, at Auburn, who at the time was kind of considered the best recruiting coordinator in the country. Um, you know, Tennessee trotted down to Atlanta and signed Jamal Lewis, Cozy Coleman, and Deion Grant out of Metro Atlanta. They were all five-star prospects. And, you know, if you want to be successful at a school like Tennessee that is, you know, the flagship university of a state that doesn't produce a lot of in-state talent, man, you got to go out of state and get those guys. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people are, you know, kind of, you know, that are on the, you know, oh, my God, you know, Kirby Smart's building this monster. But, you know, let's look, Thomas, at what is going forward with surrounding Kirby Smart. You know, you've got Jeremy Pruitt in Knoxville that, that has hired a very Georgia-savvy recruiting staff. They're going to cause him problems. You've got another Saban disciple uh, over in Columbia, South Carolina, in Will Muschamp that has several former uh, Saban coaches, you know, on the staff that's going to cause them problems. You know, you know uh, it remains to be seen what Willie Taggart can do at FSU. Um, I'm still a little bit on the fence with that deal. But you've got Dan Mullen, um, who is a proven quarterback guru, and he's hiring coaches in Gainesville that, that I think will go up into at least South Georgia and cause Kirby problems. And then, you know, you've still got Mark Rick down there in Atlanta, in, in Miami, that's got all the relationships from his time there. You know, and of course, you've got Gus Malzahn at Auburn and Nick Saban at Alabama um, that I think both will still go into the state of Georgia and get a couple of elite players every year. So, you know, I think if you look at what, you know, for all the, the boogeyman Kirby Smart stories that are out there, um, I think you have to give Kirby his credit. Um, he was able to duplicate in year two. Um, you know, kind of what Nick Saban did in 2008. Um, you know, Nick, you know, had the number one team in the country. Um, you know, they were one game. You know, there wasn't a playoff, obviously, then. But, you know, they were one game away. Um, you know, it came up a, a great gr a drive by Tim Tebow in the SEC championship game, um, you know, for, for maybe competing for a national championship a year early. You know, I don't think that's where Kirby was this year, but it wasn't like Kirby inherited a talent-depleted team in the same way that, you know, Jeremy Pruitt has. Um, and, you know, if I have to give a grade out um, as to who's hired the better staff, you know, i got to give it to Jeremy Pruitt. I think he's hired a, a great strength and conditioning coach. Um I'm interested to see what offensive coordinator Tyson Helton decides to do because he's been a part of, you know, spread offenses. He's been a part of pro-style offenses. Um, his father, you know, Kim Helton, uh, you know, was June Jones's offensive coordinator back in the 90s at the University of Houston, you know, when they were doing the damn fun and gun out there. So, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see how all this, you know, evaluations, uh, you know, recruiting pissing matches works out. Uh, but things have gotten real competitive, um, in my opinion, um, on both sides of the SEC, both in the West and the East. But, you know, 
for Alabama fans, Thomas, I think the interesting thing, especially with Nick Saban turning his focus um, to the states of Mississippi and Louisiana, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, Ole Miss has been decimated by the NCAA. Um, Mississippi State has hired a head coach um, that's coming to the state of Mississippi via Penn State. And then, of course, you've got Coach O down there in probably the most talent-rich state in the country. Um, so you can see why he's doing what he's doing, and that's what makes him, you know, the greatest of all time college football head coach. Yeah, and my my hilarious distaste of Ed Orgeron is well known on this program. I mean. Uh, I'm sorry. The second they hired him, I figured they'd he'd run LSU into the ground. And then uh, the he's working on it, Tom. Uh, uh, it's it is crazy to me because he does the whole CEO thing. The point was to do what Dabo Sweeney did and get fantastic coordinators and let Ed Orgeron be the CEO. Well, th- that's a problem when you're quote-unquote fantastic offensive coordinator is already gone because wait we're, we're we only looked at his last year the years before that were not exactly world beating but hey man again being totally unbiased the sarcasm chainsaw is coming back out fish a deal with help me out here being a totally unbiased college football fan i am perfectly okay with this happening because it only benefits the university of alabama so you know, I just, whatever, man. I, I I will not worry about LSU as long as Ed Orgeron is coaching there. Uh, I think, I, I question whether he can coach his way out of a paper bag, let alone run a multi-million dollar enterprise. So, yeah, it, whatever, man. That just well, kills you know, me. Thomas, well, let me explain this, this situation to you because I don't know, um, you know, how much, you know, knowledge you had of, of, of this kid's recruitment. But this time last year, you know, let's, let's talk about February of 2017. Anybody that could read a website or a message board would have told you that the number one cornerback in the country, uh, Patrick Sertain, was, was heading to LSU. And, you know, Patrick Sertain's uh, commitment to Alabama has sent the LSU fan base into uh, the next stratosphere. And I would, I would even place it above. If you combined, um, you know, Nick Saban stealing Reuben Foster from Auburn and Rashawn Evans from Auburn, I would even place it higher than that just because that they thought because of, you know, he, he, you know his dad is a, a former All-Pro uh, defensive back. In fact, uh, Patrick Sertain Sr. missed by only six months being coached by Nick Saban with the Miami Dolphins. He got traded to Kansas City six months prior to Nick Saban getting the Miami head coaching job. And so you can kind of see where, you know, that deal played out. Um, even though there was, you know, a bunch of family members around the Baton Rouge area, uh, you know, Corey Raymond had the relationship. Um, and I, I'm taking myself out of, you know, being a bammer and, and looking at this thing. But, you know, it's a business decision. You know, if I was a former all-pro DB and 
I, I, I felt like I had a son um, that was already labeled, you know, the number one most college-ready cornerback in the country, um, you know, by every recruiting service. You know, do I want to – you know, I, I realize that, you know, Dave Aranda is a world-class defensive coordinator. Don't take anything away from him. But, you know, that, that, that inside relationship was with Corey Raymond. But if I'm Patrick uh, Sertain Sr., and I'm sitting here looking at what between Alabama and LSU is the most stable situation, even with Nick Saban, you know, turning 66 in October, um, you know, there's no question where I'm going to send my son. And I think that, you know, there was a lot of rumors floating around before National Signing Day that maybe Corey Raymond was going to leave and, you know, go to Ohio State or maybe get a, a pro job. Um, that that's all great, but you know the instability has been provided by you know Coach O. Um, you know you 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 fire a guy in Matt Canada that I can personally tell you there were several Alabama coaches on the defensive side of the football um, that were very worried about his impact on the LSU offense. Now, I think the fact that you know, the best quarterback that they were able to field was still named Danny Etling, so a little bit of that went away. But, you know, you, you, you get rid – you run off Matt Canada, and, you know, if you're trying to make a huge splash higher and impress the LSU nation, you know, you hire a retread like Steve Mfinger. Um, Good Lord, man. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this right now, Thomas. If Ed O'Gerard is not able to land um, the number one player in the country next year from Amite High School, um, he's a five-star defensive tackle. You know, I can tell you that this kid is, you know, T-minus three years away from being, a you know, a top 15 draft pick. Um, if they're not able to land Isifer, um, Ed O'Gerard will get fired within 60 days of National Signing Day next year. That, that's how big, um, you know, this kid is as far as the future of LSU football. Yeah, And, you know, it's not a slam dunk that they're going to get it. Yeah, you're talking about Ismail Sopsher, 6'5", 279 yep. from Amity, Louisiana. Yep. And he is number one according to the – if. Whatever recruiting ranking two four seven composite has uh, him at number one, so that's a that that's a must get. And Thomas, guess what? <laughs> What's that? Um, you, you've got you've got three people within the Alabama football program um, that came out of that same program, and I was very shocked that Jeremy Pruitt was not able to lure um, this particular guy with him to go up to Tennessee because. Um, but that's who he was able to hire when he left Georgia to come to Alabama. That That's what got Alabama, Devonta Smith, and Shaheen Carter. Uh, there's a, you know, a guy on Alabama staff right now named Sam Petito um, that kind of had the local, you know, workout gym wherever he wanted to go at Amite. And, you know, that, that, that's how he, the Alabama was able to get Devonta Smith and Shaheen Carter. Um, was because of that San Petito connection. Um, and don't discount Alabama um, with this, you know, five-star defensive tackle. There, there's relationships there. I'm not saying 
they're going to get him. But I, I was shocked that, that, you know, one of the first moves when Jeremy got the job at Tennessee, that he didn't – he wasn't able to lure Petito to go up there with him. Um, but, you know, the guy that caught the winning touchdown pass in the national championship game, Devonta Smith, went to the same high school that this five-star number one player in the country for 2019 attends. So th- that's that's another kind of, I guess, inside deal, Thomas, you know, that people have to pay attention to. Um, it's all about relationships. And uh, that, that's why Nick Saban is hiring all these coaches, you know, that have relationships in Mississippi, Louisiana. And, you know, they kind of bleed over into Houston, Texas. Well, and Lord knows Texas has a lot of D1 talent, even though, to Tom Herman's credit, they did a really good job of keeping Texans in Texas, by and large. But, you know, William, just before we wrap it up, I do want to, we've talked a lot of recruiting in the defensive side of the ball. I want to float a couple of things by you on the offensive side of things. You know, obviously we'll be talking more about how the team's going to look as we get closer to spring practice. But... You know, one of the things that jumped out to me in terms of Mike Loxley being named offensive coordinator, I have no problem with it. Let me be very clear there. But he he was really more known, at least from where I'm standing, as adding spread principles to the Brian Dayball offense that we saw on the field last year. Now, to Loxley's credit, and I've heard this from multiple people, so I will... I will back it up Loxley was pushing for Tua I believe you yeah, I believe this has came up on the show several times was pushing for Tua pretty much post LSU on because the offense continued to sputter and struggle at times but you know what do you think we're going to see from Loxley do you do you see more spread principle with Tua or and assuming Tua and this is not a, this is not a uh, open and shut case because I, I actually have a different take on the quarterback situation but just for debate's sake let's just say Tua comes out and does win the starting quarterback job for the University of Alabama Crimson Tide do you see more you know RPO kind of like what we saw in the second half of the national championship is that Loxley's game how do you think that's going to evolve over the next you know let's call go at the end of spring practice the next two months well, you know, Thomas, I think if you, you know, if, if Dan Enos had not been hired as the quarterback coach, my response to you would have been, you know, hey, Thomas, guess what? We're fixing to go, you know, Lincoln Riley style with, with, with you know, Tua and Jalen Hurts, um, you know, with RPOs and, and, and a spread offense. But, you know, the Nick Saban throws the, you know, the proverbial curveball and he brings in, you know, a, in my mind, uh, one of the best college football coaches in the country that runs a pro-style offense that incorporates the tight end. Um, you know, if you look back at what Dan Enos did um, at Arkansas with the Allen brothers, at quarterback, and Hunter Henry, um, you know, a five-star tight end, you know, that, that that kind of threw a monkey wrench into, uh, you know, my take on the whole thing. Um, to me, Thomas, you know, as far as Mike Loxley being the play caller, 
you know, I look at that second half versus Georgia, and you know, you know, you know, two is not a pro style quarterback. He's a dual threat quarterback. I mean, he, you know, when he runs zone replays, um, he, he's salty. He ducks his head. He'll run your ass over. Um, you know, I think Jalen Hurts obviously is well established. You know, the last two years in the SEC conference as a runner. Um, but, but you know what comes back to me is, especially if you watch that second half of the national championship game, th- there were a couple of things that were just you know blazingly obvious. Especially if you watch the first half when Jalen Hurts was the quarterback, um, you know, with Tua at quarterback in the second half, and there was that threat of a downfield passing game. All of a sudden, you saw Najee Harris running wild. And there's a reason for that. You can't stack the box because you've got a quarterback back there that can make every throw. Um, you know, how, how is this quarterback job going to be played out in spring practice or fall camp? Um, you know, I, I know Nick's going to slow play it. Um, but, you know, to me, Thomas, I think it's pretty obvious the guy that needs to be the starter um, as an Alabama fan or, you know, all of us need to probably sit back and let it play out. But, you know, Kirby Smart and Mel Tucker had no answer, um, you know, in the second half with, with Tua Tungvaloa at quarterback. Yeah. He was running zone read plays. Um, look at all those quarterback keepers um, where he gained positive yardage. Look at all the – um, you know, when the pocket broke down and he scrambled, I think that's probably, you know, people want to talk about, uh, you know, Tua's arm count, and it's very impressive. Don't get me wrong. But the, the thing to me that makes him, you know, the guy that I think should probably be the number one guy is what he's able to do as a runner when the pocket breaks down. I mean, you know, uh, you saw the play against Vanderbilt. Um, there, there were several, you know, in, in the second half versus Georgia. And, you know, in that story that, you know, Nick Saban has been telling um, over and over again, I think this is one of the coolest stories that I've ever heard about college football. Um, you know, when, when Saban finally got a hold of, of Tua and said, you know, God almighty, you know, Tua, um, you know, we, 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 you know, rep this play over and over again. We've told you that um, you don't ever take a sack like that. You know, and, you know, Thomas, let, let's be honest. Um, you know, on that second and 26 play, um, you know, when he threw the bomb to, to uh, Devonta Smith, if that play doesn't connect, um, not only is Alabama facing a third and 26, if they don't pick up a big chunk of yards, they're out of field goal range, too, and the game's over with. And, you know, I think the the funniest thing that I've heard was, you know, the story that Nick's going around and telling, um, you know, hey, Tua, you know, we've coached you so well, and, you know, we wanted to get you more involved in the, in the game plan. And, you know, you took that, you know, ridiculous sack on first down. You know, what was going on in your head when you did that? And, you know, Tua's response was, you know, hey, coach, uh, I felt like we needed more, uh, more, more yards to complete the next pass. And, and Nick looked at him and said, that shit ain't funny. 
<laughs> That's great. Uh, I had heard various versions of that story, and I think he actually brought it up shortly thereafter nick did and uh but that's great <laughs> and, and no ju just to explain you know the pre the comment i had prefacing it i think if it, right now i think it's completely fair to assume that tua will win the quarterback competition but i, I think the narrative that there's not going to be one is pretty far out in left field and the thing that I can't get out of the back of my head, I'm going to give you two names, William, and uh, they're going to be familiar to Alabama fans, but for not the best of reasons. And those two names are Garrett Gilbert, former Texas Longhorns quarterback, former SMU Mustang, and Jeremy Johnson, former Auburn Tigers quarterback. Now I have no idea what he's doing. He should probably be selling used cars because he didn't ever pan out. And the reason I bring up those two names is that everybody forgets that Jeremy Johnson in the one half of football that he started when he wasn't the starter, when I believe Nick Marshall had a suspension for off-the-field problems, he looked like a golden god. He, was, he went absolutely off against Arkansas. Garrett Gilbert comes in for Colt McCoy. Kind of struggles early. That's to be expected given what he was facing but settled himself down and if you ask me you go back and watch the 2009 national championship game i mean alabama was an eric anders strip sack away from choking that game away because garrett gilbert had found something with jordan shipley and those guys so i'm not saying that two is going to be those guys I certainly think you can look at the plays he made against Georgia and see some things that not a lot of quarterbacks can do. You know, we've if you go back to that second and 26 play, there are NFL quarterbacks that can't execute four verticals that well. It was perfect. It's as close to a perfectly executed offensive play at every level that you, as you will ever see. And again, going with my unbiased college football fan take here, William, that's a good thing for Alabama, but I can't get the nagging doubt out of my head, and uh, that's a lot of expectations to put on a kid who has seen live fire for, what, 35 minutes of game time? Well, two, like an hour and a half, but 35 minutes of actual game time, you know what I mean? That's, that's the only thing I'm saying. Well, you know, uh, Thomas, the thing that you know, where I finally became a believer and thought that, you know, Tua should have, you know, a niche in the 2017 Alabama offense was, you know, this was just as devastating of a play as, you know, the, the, the ridiculous sack that he took, um, you know, on first down in the game against Georgia. But if you go and you look at that, that second half that he had versus Tennessee. And I think this is something that Nick Saban has to come to grips with himself as a coach. Um, you know, a guy that I think is, you know, I want to protect my defense. I don't want to have any turnovers. And if we just go out and do this, um, we're going to be successful. But, but you know, 
the, the thing that won me over with Tua was in the second half against Tennessee where he drove them down the field, they get down to the goal line, and he threw that pick six. And that was a monumental moment in my mind for Nick Saban. And you, you know, it, was, it was a terrible play. Um, you know, you can rewind it and watch it, you know, any which way you want to. Um, you know, he threw that pick six to an outside linebacker. But then go back and watch the rest of the, the second half and what he did. You know, it, it's no different than that god-awful sack that he took, you know, in the national uh, championship game, and he was able to respond that quickly with that game-winning touchdown throw. And th that's where I'm saying the program is. Um, I'm the, you know, Thomas, I'm the biggest Jalen Hurts fan that there's ever been. But even I can see um, the arm talent candy that, that Tua has. And, you know, I, you know, I think in a perfect world, you know, you should have, you know, maybe a two-quarterback system. I know that's not going to happen, especially not under Nick Saban. But, you know, that, that, that horrific sack that he took versus Georgia was, was no better or worse than the pick six that he threw versus Tennessee in the second half. And I think, you know, Nick Saban has to, you know, kind of get himself on board with having somebody at the quarterback position. And when we start talking about, you know, having three former five-star wide receivers on board, you know, and Henry Ruggs, Devonta Smith, and uh, Jerry Judy, um, he's going to have to – inclimate himself to having a gunslinger mentality and that's what you get with Tua um, you know he doesn't want to make mistakes he doesn't want to um, you know take a, a catastrophic sack or, or throw a pick six but I think you have to evaluate that offense um, week in and week out with what is this kid able to do um, outside of his you know one mistake a half and it's explosive it's nasty um you know thomas you saw what um you know once you incorporated a quarterback you know versus georgia that that could you know extend plays uh pick up third downs and you saw Najee harris run wild um you know in the national championship game that's where i start migrating to um, despite my Jalen Hurts fandom, I, I got to be honest and say, um, you know, this is the guy for the job. Um, it, it's, you know, if he was a, you know, a Freddie Kitchens or a Brody Kroll guy, it would probably be more difficult for me. But, you know, Thomas, this kid uh, runs zone read plays and he runs people over. When the pocket breaks down, you know, you saw the play versus Vanderbilt just like I did. Um, he's dynamic. And, uh, you know, I think it's time. And I don't expect it to happen, uh, you know, during the month of March for Alabama spring practice. And I really don't expect it to happen 
in August during fall camp. But I do think there's going to be a teaching moment or a monumental moment where you see Tua Tungavailoa um, become the face of the Alabama football program. I think that's fair, and no, and please don't take it as me just smashing on the kid. You, you certainly, you, you mentioned the zone read, and you, your, your, your case is very well stated. I, I just the the infatuation sometimes grates on me because I, I don't put a lot of stock into garbage time. You know, I, I, it, it's kind of why when he threw the pick six at Tennessee, okay, he made a mistake. Whoop de doo. Um, that's kind of to be expected. And then you look at Vanderbilt. He made a great play, but you know Vanderbilt was dead and buried at that point. But but no, I, sure. I and that that's why I didn't put a lot of stock in his garbage time stuff. I respect the hell out of the guys that were all over Tua from essentially the drop. You know the start of this past season, and I, I, I it's not with malice that I say it or with hope that the kid fails. It's just man. That's, uh, we have, I have seen this narrative happen more than one time, and I hope it doesn't go the way of a Garrett Gilbert or a Jeremy Johnson, because that's, uh, that was, that was, that was cringy to watch from the outside. I can't imagine what it would be like should that, should me as an Alabama fan have to deal with it. So, and I don't think, again, I don't think it'll happen, but there, I don't think it's a slam dunk either. That, that's my whole point. No, and I. <laughs> Phone down, send aid. Sorry. It's all right. No, and I think you're bringing up a great point, but at the same time, um, I think as Alabama fans, we, we've got to trust Nick Saban to Agreed. Um, make, make this decision. And it's a difficult decision, you know, Thomas. I mean, uh, you know, you've got a guy that was the SEC player of the year. Um, that, that, you know, I think the only games that I saw him, you know, kind of go backwards and fail in was, you know, versus Clemson two years ago in the national championship game, um, this year versus Auburn, um, you know, he didn't get a chance to fail versus Clemson. Uh, but but he did in the first half versus Georgia. But, you know, again, I think to me, you know, in the way I look at things, what I would like to see would be a two-quarterback system. But I, I just don't think you're going to see that with Nick Saban. On that point, we agree. And uh, that's this has been a very quick hour, Fish, and I appreciate you. Let's get on out of here, but before we do – I appreciate you spending it with me. It was a good time, and uh, I hope our listeners appreciated the uh, the different hosting voice. But uh, hopefully Drew will be back next week. But uh, I'm going to go on and take us on out of here, Fish. So for William Redfish Barger, I am Thomas Watts. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of BAMS Radio, and uh, have a great rest of your week, and roll tide.